event and for you guys for making it possible for us to go down there. It it definitely was needed and it was definitely appreciated. And you saw the kids. Um, they are getting a taste of God's love through that. Well, I have the privilege of opening God's word to you. So uh, if you have a Bible, please turn in it to Psalm chapter 2, Psalms 2. <coughs> We're looking at the Psalms this summer. We started last week with Psalm 1. The first Psalm told us about where personal thriving comes from in this world. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. So real personal thriving, being like a tree planted by water, drinking all the time and being healthy, that comes from, being, from the Lord and from His Word. And so that was what Psalm 1 was about. Psalm 2 is actually a continuation about this theme of blessing. Uh, it puts that personal invitation to blessing within a bigger context, really a worldwide context. Uh, into what kind of world is the Lord speaking His invitation to blessing? Um, why isn't it obvious to us that God is a true satisfier of our souls? Um, Psalm 2 is about the big picture, about the state of humanity as a whole. It's about the brokenness that's there. It's about the world into which he has sent a Savior who says, come to me and drink. And so we're going to see the bigger picture to this morning of the world. Psalm 2 gives us that. So we'll read Psalm 2, and then we'll pray for the Lord to open its message to us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. There's a lot in this psalm, Lord, to make us nervous and offend. Words like wrath, fury, terror perishing, anger. But 
as with all Scripture, the bigger picture is grace and mercy and the call to blessing. And so let us hear that, that call this morning. And with the sobering reality of the rest, of the wrath part, but let it be, Lord, that we might rejoice with trembling and not be one of those who perishes in the way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with an overview of the psalm. <clears throat> this is a song or a poem. It's full of imagery, and the imagery is designed to tell us something about God and about ourselves. And the chosen setting, the theme running through it, is that of a coronation ceremony for a king. That's the scene that we're supposed to have in our minds. Verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have installed him. I've set him there in place. I've put him on a throne. We're to picture this enthronement ceremony where one of the kings of ancient Israel is given rule by God over the land from Jerusalem, the city where God's presence is, Zion, where the temple is, where God's presence is most clearly known on the earth. And there's this king now installed there. Now, since I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, um, I have this picture in my mind of this coronation ceremony. Uh, of Aragorn in the Return of the King, the last movie. So the great battle for Middle-earth has been won. Gandalf sets the crown on Aragorn's head. He's the rightful king of Gondor. Aragorn turns to the people from the steps of the Great Hall, and he speaks to them about establishing a kingdom of justice and peace for all people. I love that movie. <laughs> That's kind of a coronation ceremony that I can my mind wrapped around. I think we should see that ceremony here. But unlike that scene, in this enthronement ceremony, the battles are not over. The king is enthroned in the midst of opposition all around him. Verse 1, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed the anointed being his enthroned king. The kings of the earth don't want this man to rule, and so the psalm deals with this conflict, this opposition to the king, and what the Lord and his anointed have to say about it. It deals with their response to this opposition. Well, this psalm is about a real king and real opposition to that king. It's about Jesus enthroned by God over a world that largely rejects him and what the Lord God and his anointed son have to say about it. We know that this is about Jesus because the New Testament says that it is. For example, Hebrews 5.5 5 says, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you, is a direct quote of verse 7 at this coronation ceremony. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what God said to Christ, to Jesus, his beloved son. You are the son in this picture. So this is a psalm about a world in opposition to Jesus as king and where that opposition leads. But it's also a promise 
It's a promise of blessing to those who will put down their opposition, to those who will embrace Him. Because the last verse says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's what He wants us to leave with, this invitation to blessing from the King. This psalm has four stanzas or sections. The first line of each section introduces the main themes of the unfolding story. So let's walk through them, beginning with verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do they do that? That's what the psalmist wants us to, to be thinking about at first. Nations are raging. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Does that not accurately describe the world that we live in? Doesn't it describe world history? Isn't, isn't our whole history filled with wars and rumors of wars, to use the words in the Gospels? I googled um, to find out what wars are currently going on in the world right now. They listed 17 active conflicts that have claimed more than 1,000 lives in the last year. Number two on the list was the drug war in Mexico, which isn't over. 4,000 people have been killed this year, 151,000 since it broke out in 2006. We see the effects of that every time we go to Rancho 3M. You see all these vacant buildings, um, gutted destroyed, people don't live there anymore. It's the signs of what once was a thriving city, and now it's been shrunk down, all because of the drug war. So we see that every time we go down there. The nations rage. The history of the world is a history of conflict, but Psalm 2 says there's something deeper going on than just people at each other's throats. The opposition is more than what we see on the surface or we hear about in the news. Verse 2 tells us why do they rage? Here's why. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, together against who? Against the Lord and against His anointed. That's what's really going on deep down underneath all the conflict. There's a God over us and there's a world that doesn't want this God to be over us. We want to do things our own way. The raging, the conflict, whether that's between nations or between two people, is ultimately a raging against God. Jesus told a parable in Luke 19 about a nobleman who went away to a far country to receive a kingdom, and he left his servants with ten minas. He, he left them with money, and he said, do business with this until I return, and he expects them to do something with it and make a return on that. Well, in the parable, the citizens of the country, it says, hated the nobleman and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. It was a parable about Jesus. He's the nobleman who, in that very moment, was going off to a far country to receive a kingdom so to speak. He was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, bear the penalty of the sins of all who trust in him, then be buried in a tomb, but then resurrected to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God one day to return. He is in a far country, we might say, because we don't see him with our eyes, though he is present in this world in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And Psalm 2 says the world is like the citizens of that nobleman's country. Behind the raging, behind the opposition that we see is opposition to our Creator. We do not want this man to rule over us. It has been that way ever since the Garden of Eden. The Lord said, eat anything you want, just not from this one tree. So what did Adam and Eve say? I think I will anyway. Right? I'm not going to be under that rule. Do you not see that in toddlers? <laughs> I heard an amen. Johnny, don't touch that. What does Johnny want to do? I'm going to touch that. Right? That's, that's in our hearts. We want to rule our own lives. We don't like the idea of somebody else telling us what to do. We don't want a king over us. We rage against anyone or anything that stands in the way of what we think is best. And the scriptures say there is a king. There is someone over us. God, our creator, and Jesus, his son. And he has the right to tell us how to live. Our consciences say the same thing when they're functioning. In Romans 1, it says we know God exists. His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. We know He's there, but we don't want Him to reign over us. And verse 3 gives voice to why that is. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To our natural minds, to have God tell us what to do feels like slavery or imprisonment. It's like chains and handcuffs. We're in bondage. It's restrictive. He's joy-robbing. He doesn't really want good things for us. If I follow what the Bible says about sex, it's going to limit my happiness. And didn't Jesus say, the greatest among you must be the servant of all and the least of all? Who wants to live like that? The scriptures talk about confessing my sins to others, admitting my failure and my weaknesses. They tell me to worship a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago. No way. To our natural way of thinking, yielding to God and to Christ feels like bondage. His ways are the bonds that we want to cast off. We think freedom is in doing what we want to do without any interference. That's what's underneath the raging. That's the history of the world that is trying to find happiness without God. In the political realm, in education, in the arts and scientists, in science, in our own homes, the deepest issue is that we are inclined to do what we want, and God's ways seem like a form of slavery. So that makes us like Denethor, in the return of the king. Denethor was the steward of Gondor. He was the placeholder to rule the realm until Aragorn arrived. Gandalf said to Denethor, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king. To which Denethor spits out his reply, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. That's in my heart. That's in your heart. That's what we do naturally. We rage against God. 
Now, how does that land on God? What does he think about all this raging against him? Verse 4 introduces his response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, meaning ridicule, mockery. Now remember, this is poetry. So we are in the genre of imagery and figures of speech. What is this intended to communicate? I mean, is the Lord actually howling in laughter all the time as he's you know, watching the scene of humanity play out? No. This is the use of human language to help us understand some aspect of God's character and God's ways. He who sits in the heavens laughs is a way of saying God is not threatened by this opposition at all. He's just not threatened by any of this. Even if all of humanity is united in rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed, He is not worried. It has zero impact on His agenda for the world. His will is not thwarted in the least. All of his plans will succeed. It's just no contest. He is not going to lose. It's not rocket science to see why. It's man versus God. It's the kings of the earth against he who sits in the heavens. That right there is a picture of a serious home field advantage. Heavens, earth. It's the almighty creator of the universe being challenged by people who live on this tiny speck of a planet in the corner of a vast universe that he controls. That's why in verse 1 it says the people's plot in vain. We're to experience the psalmist's sense of incredulity that anyone would attempt to cast off the rule of God and Christ. The idea is laughable. The reality is... God will not allow God-denial to succeed in a God-created world. God will not allow God-denial to succeed in a God-created world. Borrowing that phrase from Ray Ortland, who taught our Psalms class, I think it's a good summary. To the contrary, the ultimate end of that attempt to live without God, to deny Him, is in verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's that saying? Well, it means trying to live without God is not going to end well. It just won't. God has set a king over the earth, a real king, a real ruler, and his name is Jesus. You might think turning away from God and Christ is the way of freedom, but actually it ends in terrifying judgment. There is consequence for rejecting God and His Christ. We don't like to think about that. That seems like a hard side to God. The side of the Lord we don't want to think is real. And to be sure, that's not the first or last impression that the Lord wants us to have of Him. This psalm, even though it talks about wrath and fury, does still end with an invitation to blessing, to refuge. That's God's heart toward us. But we can't deny the justice of judgment from a king who has legitimate rule over rebels. 
over his citizens who say, we do not want this man to rule over us. The Lord intends to establish a kingdom of justice and peace. And Isaiah 9, 7 says of the Son and of this kingdom, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. Jesus comes to establish a beautiful kingdom, one that is already growing in the hearts of those people who have said yes to him as Lord, to those who delight in him and in his law. As Psalm 1 says, it's a great kingdom of justice and peace and beauty and righteousness, and that's what he's about. But for that kingdom to come into full fruition, for it to fill this earth, the Lord will have to do something about those citizens who refuse to have him reign over them who will work against that kingdom. He has to put down the rebellion, and that won't end well for the rebels. Now, here's how this intersects with our lives. It's obviously a warning for some. If you've been going your way in life and you don't give Jesus any serious thought, if you don't think he has any real claim on your life, then you should realize that you're in trouble if that doesn't change. You're not going to find the happiness and the peace and the security in life that you're looking for. God has created us. We thrive only when we acknowledge His proper authority in our lives, when we go His way. And you'll want to see how this psalm ends because there's that invitation at the end to find refuge in Him. Your story can end well. Now, for others, for those who delight in the Lord already, this, this reality of God's unchallenged rule is a great comfort. You may have heard the phrase, on the wrong side of history. It, in politics, it means your opinions and your practices are out of date and they're unenlightened. Um, you haven't moved on with the rest of the world. You hold on to beliefs that everybody knows are obsolete and only ignorant people hold to those things. More generally, on the wrong side of history means history will judge you as being um, in the wrong. You lived a certain way. It seemed right to you. But one day, people will look back and say, can you believe that anybody did that or thought that? In our culture... Christianity is one of those things that people are saying is on the wrong side of history. At least the historic Christianity that's captured in creeds and confessions throughout the centuries. If you believe that forgiveness of sin is only through Jesus Christ, through faith in His death on the cross, if you believe the Bible is the very Word of God, that it has authority over all of life, including what it says about human gender and sexuality, more and more that is seen as obsolete and wrong. And there's a lot of pressure to conform, to get on board with the majority, especially as the social cost of being a Christian rises. You wonder sometimes if you've joined up with the wrong side. Psalm 2 says you didn't. He who sits in the heavens rules the world, and no one who puts their hope in him will ever regret it. In Isaiah 45, 17 to 19, the Lord speaks comfort to those who trust in him. 
It says to Israel, and you can read believers in Jesus there, the Israel of God, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There's a lot of pressure to be embarrassed, to think you're doing something wrong if you're hanging on to this faith in Jesus Christ. And you might feel like I'm on the wrong side of history, but take comfort, friends. The true king of this world speaks what is right. And he's bringing you into a beautiful kingdom. He's already done it if you put your trust in him. He's already brought you into a kingdom of peace and justice and beauty, and it's eternal. And that's solid. That can't be taken away. Everything in this world is going God's way, ultimately. All God denial will fail in the end, but those who love the true king will not be put to shame or confounded for eternity. You'll never regret allegiance to the Lord and to his anointed. Now let's turn to the anointed one, to the king himself. He speaks in verses 7 through 9. And he says this, I will tell of the decree. I will tell of the decree. So at the enthronement ceremony that's pictured here, the, the Lord God makes a decree or an official pronouncement about the king whom he calls his son. And we learn three things about this king's rule. First of all, it's a legitimate rule. It is bestowed by God himself. The Lord said to me, says the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, imagery. What does it mean? It means he has a special relationship with God. This king is to God what a son is to a father. He represents the father. He acts on his behalf. He has a privileged status conferred on him. He has an inheritance. We're to see Jesus as the one being coronated here as God's king. God's appointed man on earth to, to exercise his will. Now, when did the coronation actually take place? Do we know this? Well, it was when he rose from the dead. Acts 13, 32 and 33, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to their fellow Jews, and, and they say this, We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus... As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, you are my beloved son, today I have begotten you, is a declaration that is fulfilled by God by raising Jesus. The, the resurrection is Jesus' coronation. That's when he's installed as ruler over the world. That's why the risen Jesus could say to his disciples at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, on the cross, when Jesus was crucified, they charged him with being an imposter, with being a blasphemer, a criminal, low life, get rid of this guy, because he made a claim of being the Son of God. And they thought they were done with him, but in the resurrection, God the Father said, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Today I have vindicated you. Today I have installed you as king over this world. It's a legitimate rule that is given to him by God himself. And that leads to the second thing that it says about the, his rule. The scope of his rule is over all humanity. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Here's more father-son language. The king who is a son gets an inheritance from the father. What is it? It's the nations. It's the ends of the earth. It's everybody and everything. And finally, it tells us about the strength of his rule. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a warning to those who will not recognize his rule over him. These are the citizens who hold out to the end, who say we don't want this man to reign over us. It means Jesus will utterly end all the rebellion. No power can resist him. No concerted effort to throw off his word and say we're not, we're not doing any of that. None of that will stand. All the opposition to his rule is just a clay jar that gets smashed by a rod of iron. Again, that's not the side of Jesus that you'll hear a lot about. It seems out of sync with the Jesus who is more agreeable to us. The one who is gentle and lowly. The one who heals and forgives. The one who bears blame for our sins. The one who comes to seek and save the lost. All those things really are who Jesus is. They genuinely are. And those are the things we should expect from Him as those who trust Him and receive Him as our Savior. And yet, there must be justice for those who won't receive Him, who would oppose the kingdom that He wants to bring. Nahum 1-2 says of the Lord, He keeps wrath for His enemies. That has to be true. Otherwise, we couldn't make any sense of Revelation chapter 6, 15 and 17. John saw a vision of things to come, the future, and he saw this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Like a clay jar before an iron rod, no opposition can stand before the legitimate, worldwide, strong rule of King Jesus. He will not let it stand. Because he's come to bring something beautiful. We have to see the whole picture of King Jesus. The wrath is real. The consequences are real. And there's reason to be sobered by that. And yet, in wrath, God remembers mercy, which is something that Habakkuk prayed in his letter in the Old Testament. In verse 8, The Lord God says to His anointed Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
Let me ask you this. Did the son ever ask God for that? Here at the installation, he says, ask of me and I'll give it to you. I'll give you a heritage. I'll give you peoples. I'll give you nations. Did he ever ask for it? Did he ever ask for people to belong to him and be in his kingdom? Yes, he did. In John 17, 24, he prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. God has given people to Jesus to be where he is and to see his glory. They are people who don't reject His rule, who put their trust in Him as Lord and King and Savior. They're the ones that He makes into citizens of His kingdom of peace and justice and beauty. These are the ones of Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. He got what He asked for. In Revelation, there's a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation rejoicing around the throne. Wrath is real, but so is mercy. And mercy is the invitation to rebels like us. And that's how the psalm ends. It invites us to respond to this king and receive the blessing instead of the consequences. Verse 10 introduces it. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Do the sensible thing. <laughs> be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is the same group that's being addressed in verses 1 to 3. The kings of the earth, the peoples who plot in vain, the rulers of the world, and the ones who want to rule their own lives, all of these, to all of these, counsel is given to do the sensible thing. What is the sensible thing? Verses 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We see consequence and we see blessing here. What are the consequences well, the same ones we've been hearing about, there's something here to fear, something to tremble about, namely perishing in the way, wrath quickly kindled, wrath that will show itself quickly when the time comes. That's a warning to those who do not want this man to rule over us. But here's, here's the wisdom, here's the, the movement toward blessing. Here's the sensible thing to do. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. That's the language of worship. That's to respond to Jesus as Thomas did when he saw the resurrected Jesus with the nail marks still in his hands. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It's rejoicing with trembling. It's the response of those who have received mercy, who know the terrible consequences you've been saved from and the boundless joys you've been saved into. Namely, a kingdom of blessing, the kingdom 